My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. All right, so um, before we talked about how there are a couple of words that set everybody off on the Twitter account and now on Instagram, and now I want to talk about the theme that might be the theme that sets off people more often than not, and in interesting ways. I will have to say that I do find it fascinating, some of the remarks I get. And the theme is the theme of romantic love. And there are a couple of writers in the Jungian community that have written a lot about it. One of them is Robert A. Johnson, who wrote He, She, We. We is the one that, uh, that deals specifically with that whole, the whole story. And the other one, the most one of the most brilliant books written, I've mentioned it before, I'm sure. And if I haven't, I will probably mention it many times. And that is The Eden Project by James Hollis. Because I think, I think The Eden Project is the book you give to mature people so they understand not only their partners and who they want to partner with, and but actually probably understand the relationships they have to everything from the corporate world to religion to it is such a brilliant book. And I've said this before, I'm sure, maybe I didn't, but I definitely said it when James Hollis came to town to work with my group. That's how I got my group going with that book. It's that powerful. So what's your take on romance? Let's, let's start with what's your idea when you think of romantic love? What comes up? What What do you think about it? I think of a lot of silliness. Um, I can't help but say that because it's plastered everywhere in the entertainment industry and I, it's it just there's just so much cheesiness to it i hate valentine's day so but at the same time i understand it i understand it it's like, i think it's a necessary experience that we develop through at some point in our lives okay so let's 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 keep asking questions is it the experience of romantic love or what we're creating imaginally through the vehicle of romantic love? First well, of all, could we even define what is romantic love? Let's, let's start with that, right? Because, I mean, love poetry was written right back. Sappho was writing love poetry, you know, 6th century BCE. So some notion of love has existed, but this is a pretty different brand in my view. And, and certainly from what um, specifically uh, both Johnson and uh, Hollis argue. It's very different, the, the well, current drop. Well, it's not like, so there's there's an intensity and a, uh, not there's something, huh? a longing, a yearning. Mm -hmm. uh, th these, are, these are things, yes, that's where I was going with this, that are marked in the, by these relationships that aren't in our other relationships. So, you know, you don't experience that with, you know, that same thing with, necessarily friends or family or co-workers or you know people you worship with or whatever you know people you go to a concert with so th there's something behind it that th there's an intensity behind it that i think is marks it as as different from from what we would typically call love okay. i think there's a different quality to it and what i meant by experience you know yes i see where you're going with that but we don't know whenever we're initiated into romantic love, we don't know that that's, you know, what we're doing. You no. Know? Okay. You don't? What, the, what kind no, of romantic no, love no. situations have you had? <laughs> I mean, we weird. don't, we don't know when we first fall in love, whatever our first experiences mm -hmm. or whatever. And it, several experiences it doesn't matter um everyone figures this well i won't say everyone but people don't figure out that this is something going on within themselves that they've created hmm. at the time it's still an experience it's an experience and it's an initiatory a tory experience how so but how is it an initiatory sorry can you explain that part because i think it in i think the thing that's different about the romantic relationship is it enlivens their personality in some way Mm, that's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because you're creating something. And I think creation has a lot to do with it. So let's go. I, I did this on a bus one day. I'm not sure they appreciated this, but I was leading a <laughs> tour in, uh, in uh, Spain. 
And I had to give talks on the bus so people wouldn't get bored. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I was really tired too because I was doing translation and leading talk. It was crazy. But we were going through this particularly beautiful landscape because it was my part of Spain and I happened to think it was particularly beautiful and it is. And I decided to get up and talk about romantic love then and I don't know why. Particularly, I was in the mood and I thought, well, let's just say what. And I talked about, um, and I'm not sure if Johnson said, I'm not even sure. You know, sometimes I just, you pick things from different places and then you just figure out what seems important. But the whole idea of romantic love, the way we understand it now, seems to go back to the Middle Ages, right? And that's a really particularly important period of time mythologically, according to Jung, on France, because a whole series of myths came out of the Celtic world. And okay, I was in Celtic Spain. This is probably what I thought connected this, this whole thing. So here we are in Galicia, and I'm thinking of this particular story becomes, and that's the Arthurian legends, right? And you have, you think about it, and not only the Arthurian legend, but Tristan and Isolde, a whole bunch of the stories. Tristan and Isolde is the actual story that Robert A. Johnson explores in We. And what's really important about that period, according to Jung, et al, all these people writing in that tradition, is that you get the compensation for the overly masculine attitude by the resurgence of the feminine. And it shows up with, in this particular way, which I thought was really quite interesting because I love history. And that is that this is the time, and I come from the part of Spain where the big the Camino ends, Santiago de Compostela ends, is where the cathedral is that people make these great pilgrimages. And what's interesting about it is it was a time when people were, the pilgrimages were also going to Jerusalem and you have the Knights Templar and it's really a uh, really exciting time of history from a mythological perspective. But one of the things that I, that Johnson or someone reports is that when these uh, men went on these pilgrimages to Jerusalem, they encountered people from the Muslim world who were reciting poetry by the likes of Rumi. And it's very intense poetry. And what the Western... Uh, the knights that were coming from the West, they, they, they learned this poetry. The Rumi's poetry is all about your relationship to the inner God, the inner self, right? It has very little to do with, with anything outside of you. But the way that it was interpreted by these men, whereby we must project this onto a woman. And this started the whole, con the, the whole um, courtly love ideal, which was really interesting because it was always young men who would sing to women who were married, so it was very safe. So the woman would be on top of the balcony, or on the balcony, sorry, and the man would be singing from, and it was encouraged because it produced, and this is what I think is really brilliant about this whole story, it produced great art, doesn't it? I mean, he's singing, it's beautiful, but it's safe, right? Because the person can be on the balcony, there's enough distance, and the husband, she's married. Unfortunately, what would happen, what eventually happened is people got together, and so the Catholic Church started coming down on this because, okay, we don't want this. This is a breaking of the rules when they were when the um when the knights were going off to pilgrimage they were wearing on the on their chest the word amor which is love but if you read it the other way it's roma rome and mm -hmm. it's almost like what you're asserting is independence from the collective and what campbell said which actually was the thing joseph campbell said something in the lecture that actually totally reframed this for me and made and you know reaffirmed what I think why I think he's a genius. Uh, he said that the the way that romantic love was conceptualized in the West was absolutely necessary for the development of the Western psyche. That it would, in fact it was this assertion that I can belong to one person and not the church and not to the conventions of my society that distinguished the West from the East. And so that that love poetry was actually the vehicle for individ individualism, mm -hmm. a kind of individualism which he then says you can argue with him or not, led to the scientific revolution because you had to break rules. So the breaking of a rule, and this is kind of interesting because it's in all our stories, right? You break a rule, you break a law, you do what you're not supposed to, and somehow something great comes of it, even though the person who generally takes that step will be punished in, in some way. But in fact, it furthers the collective story along. So in his view, you cannot look at that period of romantic love and say, oh, how silly and what happened. A, produces poetry, B, which is art, and you know we all value that. But actually, it was a bigger story because it was an assertion that I am an individual and I will not let my family, my culture, decide who I love. And that did not happen. And the equivalent thing did not happen in these. That's his contention anyway. But the way that got really dangerous was the 19th century. This gets reinvented by the Romantics, who are in turn actually 
uh, responding or rejecting the whole reason, like everything's reason. It's like, no, we're going to write poetry and we're going to be really sentimental. And by the way, we're going to write really bad novels because that's a lot of them did in the early uh, 19th century. I had to read a lot of these during my master's program. It was awful. And they, they, they followed kind of, what they did is they literalized what happened with these uh, with these knights because they, they took the same story and it was the same story, but it was a young man falling in love with an older married woman the twist was that as soon as they got together, they would they would get bored and then the woman would kill herself or there would be a horrible, you know, it was, it was just because the problem is they were literalizing, they're making literal something that was never meant to be literal. It Because this coincides, the 19th century gets this, this whole high romanticism coincides with a decline in the interest in the Christian God or a belief in the Christian God. One thing replaces the other. And so now you have a situation where you don't have God, you have the other, and that relationship will be my savior. And if I meet the right person or my soulmate, whatever that means, <laughs> um, I will, I will be, I will be redeemed. This is my savior. And that's a very dangerous proposition because what happens is you can't have a real relationship because it won't take long for you to realize the person's not a savior and you're getting each other's ways. And 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 frankly, it doesn't really allow for a lot of compassion because most relationships that are worth anything require a lot of forgiveness on both parts of people's idiosyncrasies and weirdness and whatever, right? Uh, so you replace that. And then even worse, you make you make a lot of money out of it, which is really what we're doing now. We sell cars, we sell, we sell well, movies. It's practically how many movies have to have a love story or it doesn't work. I'm always really respectful of a movie that doesn't go there because I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> this is great. They've actually managed to avoid this. Because look, people are relating to their inner selves. And this is where I think this whole concept of romantic love is really powerful. You're just really trying to get in touch with your own inner inner uh, capacity to feel intensely. And you're not, you're right, not gonna do that with a friend. Yeah, I mean, although I do like what James Solomon says. He says, you know, and I felt this, with friends, you can sometimes have extreme, also big connection Certainly. moments. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you just have nothing invested in the same way. Right, it's not the same. It, it's not the same intense. I mean, there's intensity, there can be intensity, but it's not, oh my God, I can't lose you. <laughs> you know, it's not that. And we're both laughing, which is <laughs> bad at this. It's like, oh, please stop talking like that. I know. Anyway, yeah, I just, uh, it's it's painful to me to hear it only because it is a diminishment of what I think um, the higher version of this is. That's all. Right. I'm not saying that there's no validity to it. And of course you have to have that moment or else you don't get together with anybody where you're like, oh, okay. But when you hold on to that kind of ideal or that kind of um, almost infantile emotion, it's it just, it does not allow for a real relationship. It can't. And, and the worst part is that it becomes an addiction to many people. So then they keep moving on to the next uh, the next situation because they're trying to recover that high, which can never really be recreated with the same person in quite the same way. And by the way, what was really interesting about the medieval uh, stories is there's always three, there's triangulation. There has to be a third person to make this whole thing impossible. It mm -hmm. always ends up with somebody dead or both of them dead, right? Because you cannot have, because the moment you get what you want, right? it just, the intensity disappears. That's right. like so, anything in life though, right? Right. So it tells you it's more about connecting connecting to that thing within ourselves more than it is anything, meaning connecting to that experience of, of longing right. in some way uh, that that is actually something that we need and something I think that are, we're designed to put to use, I would say, maybe designed isn't the right word, but that we are something that needs to be put to use. How, how so? What do you mean? What do you mean put to use? So I, I will say this, I'm, and, and I'll admittedly, uh, I've fallen victim to the same, same well, traps. Has. Everybody has. <laughs> I mean, we'd be, we'd be lying that in that. Of course, of yeah, course I'm not above it. Uh, yeah. I always try to I'm... be above, by the way. I mean, that, that sounds like we're saying, oh, you awful people. It's part of human nature. It's just been commercialized maybe to levels we don't like, but right. it's actually very important. And, and right. for the reason that Joseph Campbell, but even bigger reasons, which you're going to tell me right now why because it, it connected me um, to, I, I figured out at some point I had to do something with it. It wasn't there just to be there. It wasn't there just, like I felt it was an, a necessary pain or whatever you want to call it. Something that I was experiencing it for a reason. And that reason was, well, 
there, there's something I need to do with this. And, and so I would say that those experiences more than not is what, you know, there, there's the stereotype of the, the, of the musician or, you know, the guy with the guitar that starts that craft because he's trying to win over affection. Well, with me, I feel like it was always the opposite. I feel like um, it was that it was that longing, that yearning that pointed me to the craft because I needed a vehicle to carry that because there was nothing else to do with it because it's God. It's awful sometimes and um, it's intense. And so you need something I think or I did. I needed something to work through it and not just, um, you know, well, now I'm that's it. I'm, you know, I got to go find someone else. So that that's kind of the way I look at it. shows a great degree of consciousness right because most people don't look at it that way number a and b you also have an outlet for it and maybe not everybody does so you have you were able to transform those emotions into song right which is a great way by the way and i have always i've always argued that anybody can really transform anything into that's the whole alchemical story you can take any emotion and transform it or not transform it, but find a container for it outside of that person, which by the way, even if you're involved with a person kind of frees that person up because you're not, you know, putting all your longing in that, in a place where it's probably not all that appropriate. Um, so you have that, but the average person may not feel that they have, like how would the average person, so you're telling to them, you're telling them, well, you know, romantic love is a bit of a, it's important at the beginning. It connects you trying to collect, connect to a deeper feeling but you don't want to get stuck there. So what do you do? What would you tell them if they don't write songs, they don't write novels, they don't, you know, how else can you transform this? That is a very difficult question to answer because I know my experience and I know what, where I put it to use. I think it's really good to think of it as in terms of, coming alive in in oneself that 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 pain that that yearning that longing to envision it as something that completely belongs to oneself i don't know what to tell people to do with it though okay <laughs> that's difficult i mean we've we've said that everyone is creative right everyone yeah everyone, but a lot of people don't believe that so everyone, just, yeah. everyone has the same mm. you know they may not have the same the same talents or gifts but but they're creative but they may not be driven that way right my view of it is you can say to someone but they, you know they don't want to sit and write a novel they want a short short story no, they don't want, no, they don't want to write a song right so you can't really point them that direction if they're not naturally inclined because i think there's something also about you just that you having a natural uh, ability to be able to affect that transformation. So I don't think you can say that. The other thing here, though, is, and, and I think we've talked about this before, is some people feel it more intensely than others. That is true. That is true. And I think there it, is a character. What, what I think the feeling type would probably be the most, um, well, or actually it could be anything, because look at Wolfgang Pauli. He was a thinker and he went completely crazy. Uh, so, yeah. Hmm. So I, I think perhaps those of us that feel it more intensely are going to be more inclined to find containers okay. or find ways to integrate it, in, you know, creatively, artistically. Hmm. Uh, maybe not, maybe not, but I'm just wondering. I mean, I'm we're, we're, we're both, yeah, yeah, no, no, I, we're both, we're both inclined to do this creatively, but I'm just wondering <clears throat> if you're not so there there might be a, a, a way to do this uh and i and i think i read it once and it hit me that this is the answer to the whole thing which is the cure for the longing is the longing itself right mm -hmm. 
So maybe through body work, you could also do this, right? Where you can sit with the longing, but not attach it to anything. Have you ever tried this? Mm-hmm. And does it work? Like, do you, do you feel the, the processing of that emotion in a healthy way? I mean, you're not avoiding it. You're actually sitting. It's almost like the idea is like sitting in the fire, right? The, the concept right. of alchemy. But you're sitting in the fire without thought and without attachment. And the attachment is when you think of the person, then you're attached and that's over, right? But if you can feel the feelings, every part of your body that feels alive, you know, and for people, it's in different places. Sometimes it's the heart. I mean, it's just, you just feel totally alive. But then process it though. Just let it, when you connect to it, connect to it through that means. Because everybody can do that if they practice. Although I say that, and a lot of people have said they do not know what I mean when I say this. They can't. They can't imagine how you do this. But I'm just wondering if that is a way to feel really alive. Because it's the body, it's this the psyche that is creating this. And it can't, the fire dies out, or the fire abates, or it gets calmed when the image isn't attached to it. Mm-hmm. It's when you're just feeling the emotion, mm-hmm. right? Right through to the end. It's the same thing, kind of the same principle with something else that's difficult to feel, whether that be um, some type of rage or mm-hmm. uh, jealousy or something. Sitting with that, you're not, or I, I'm not, when, when I think about doing that and when I do participate with that, the idea is not to fight it, but it's also not to, uh, so when you're, when you're sitting with something, you're neither fighting it, nor are you, right. yeah, so in a way it loses the power, the power that it has over you that, that gets directed, it's so, so powerful that it gets directed outwardly, yeah. it, it loses that power once you embrace it as something within yourself when you sit with it like i mean i've i've done this with with several feelings and it does it takes it does take the edge off but it it also takes the power yeah that it has over you yeah but people don't this this is the key so you, you made a couple of interesting points one of them is that you've sat with other feelings i think you're told to do this with anger and rage and uh, discomfort but i don't think you're told to do this with love all that not often. at all yeah not at all and i think that that's just another feeling and and if you go into the feeling and differentiation of feeling why aren't we told to sit with that right now you are if you're doing spiritual practice that's actually one of the tenets of sufism for example you sit with it mm-hmm. you do a lot of meditations on the heart the idea is you're trying to be compassionate to, and and by the way i mean <clears throat> love in its highest form is compassion right so mm-hmm. you're sitting with something and trying to build it sort of like a fire uh, within, but in general, in the culture, you know, they say, well, "Sit with your anger, right? sit with your disappointment." But it's funny that they never, to me anyway, I don't hear "sit with the feelings of love you have," and don't let them land. Don't let them land on anyone. And I think the reason is that people love fantasizing, and if you're taking away the capacity to fantasize, and by right. the way, fantasy is a form of creativity as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking their capacity to be able to imagine scenarios and fantasize and love. Um, I think you're taking away something that they don't want. That's why they go to the movies and experience it. And and by the way, that is what drama always did. It allowed you to experience emotions that you maybe did not have access to on a regular level. So it was good. It was a form of therapy, (laughs) of of, uh, initial and original therapy. But um, I think the real problem is you're fighting an addiction. And really, you can be addicted to alcohol, you can, but a lot of people are addicted to that feeling. And it's very hard to let them, and and they will get very angry at you, not realizing that they were reacting to is the withdrawal of a possible addiction, which may not be serving them because they're not in great relationships. They're too busy projecting stuff and longing. And and then when that goes away, then they find somebody else, et cetera. Uh, But they get really equally angry as somebody who wants another drink. And it's just because it's acceptable and because most of our movies are about it and a lot of our books and songs, then I think people don't sit and say, is this even healthy on some level, right? And for me, there is a function that, you know, the the fantasy uh, creation, the, the, the idea of creating story, which is what you're doing, really, okay? You're creating a story mm-hmm. between you and this person. All right. Um, that is really important uh, information mm-hmm. for you, right? You and I would say, well, it's giving me information about me. <laughs> okay, first of all, it's going to be information about the kind of masculine I have in my case and what I'm attracted to, which is really part of me. What what am I not living out? Or there's a whole bunch of information you can get, but that's really clinical analysis that a lot of people 
really don't want to uh, to get into. Uh, and then there's, of course, a phenomenon, which I'm sure you've encountered, of the person who keeps falling for exactly the same type of person over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. it's 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 with the same kind of qualities, I should say, in terms of whatever personality traits or whatever. Uh, so there is something that there, it's really useful as information, but try to get some try to get someone to stop, right? from in, in engaging in this and tell them to sit down and feel that feeling. <laughs> they're they're going to be more likely to, listen, you could tell them rage, they're all in tonight. You tell them love, it's like, oh, no, because you're at that moment, you're severing the very thing that's keeping you alive. And that is the point you were making earlier. What you're trying to do is just to feel alive, right? Dancing on leaves, blowing Okay, so we both agree that romantic love is something that doesn't necessarily lead to to um, the kind of relationship that one might want on a longer term level or for growth. So why is this happening? There must be a reasoning, a reason that this is happening, that people are finding the need to do this sort of projection onto others. Well, what's what, what would you say about that? about why they do it like what the motivation is psychological i mean we know psychological well in in jungian theory it would be uh, a man projecting what jung termed the the anima which is the the female component of the personality that is not as well integrated and needs to be integrated and with the female, it would be what you termed uh, the animus, which is the masculine aspect of the woman's personality that needs to be integrated. And the reason it's important to be integrated is because we're supposed, we, we are, we are whole people. We are, uh, the whole idea behind Jungian psychology is these are things that need to be integrated in us in order for us to live, you know, fulfilling lives and to realize the greater the greater whole okay so how do you do that okay no let's let's step back these words are really confusing so let's go i will i will attack the animus because i think i have thought about it a bit i'm gonna let you take on the anima but i think the only way people will understand this at least in my experience of this is through example through how does what does this look like uh, well, how did he even conceptualize this? And I'm not going to say don't go to the theory because that gets into the weeds. I'm just saying if if you're going to encounter these figures, inner figures in the outer world, what do they look like? Let's start with the anima. In the outer in the outer world, what yeah, do they like, look like? Yeah, like what 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 are these figures? Uh, yeah, what are they like? How how do they take shape? As in take shape in an everyday person's life. No, I'm thinking more of uh, uh, the okay. The standard, we, the standard view in certainly Marie Zvon France had a uh, gradation of the animal, right? In the old four standard, the four again, the quaternity. So it was Eve, okay. it was Helen, it was it was Virgin uh, Mary, Virgin and it was Mary. Sophia. These are really a bit outdated in my view. I mean, they may be great archetypal principles, but how do they look like in current dress? If you want to put it that way. Well, Eve, I think, would be uh, if we're going with the first order. The first order, um, the most basic and fundamental order, would I believe be based in biology. You know, the need to uh, procreate. So th- that's where I see that. In in today's culture, I, I think you might see that in something like uh, what we call hookup culture, you know, where there's no really emotional attachment, but uh, sexuality is being expressed. I-, I think that that would be the first order. Okay. So uh, let's, let's go to the second order. The second order, I think, is where you get into uh, the romantic type okay. of relationship. Okay. 
Right. You mentioned Helen, um, Helen of Troy. So there is a, an emotional entanglement with this aspect of the anima. I would say that she actually enlivens man, men to their own emotional lives. And it's something that they're connecting to for maybe the first time in a new way. Right. So that is the the romantic ideal, I would yeah. say. So you go, so first you have sexuality, then you have the romantic ideal. Which is more linked, you're saying, to the sexuality is still there. I mean, you're building on these things. Yes, but, there is a sexuality component right. to that. But it's uh, emotional now. It's, it's emotional. It's got an emotional connection, right? Yes, emotional okay. connection. All right. All right. So then what do we make of the Virgin Mary, which is certainly something a lot of people will not relate to in any way? Well, well, so what I think about with the Virgin Mary is, of course, if, if you're Catholic, uh, the Virgin Mary uh, is a huge thing. And it's a symbol that you can, you know, she's someone that you can project upon. She carries something for you. But of course, we're not all Catholic. The way that I see this out, I, I see once you get to the Virgin Mary uh, status or you, you phrased it earlier, once you get to the Virgin Mary, I think you're looking more internally. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's more about a value system. So the example, so because it's more of an internal thing, uh, I think with that you're going to be living it out differently than you would with the first two. So an example might be someone living out this part of the feminine would be something like social work, uh, charity, mission work. I, I think of um, two men that kind of carried this really well in life. And that would be Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Gandhi. I, I think that they were very, uh, that that part of the feminine was very integrated. Right. And we can we interject here very quickly, because someone's going to bring it up. Both those men had very problematic relationships with the actual women in their lives. So I, I want to make sure that, that we understand that this is not a model of perfection. It's a model sure. of, of of expression of certain qualities because right. that is so, what will always be brought out, right? So, so the the sexual drive is still there. Right. The, okay. um, I, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't leave us. It's still there. So, they were two very human people, and just because they are relating to the feminine in uh, a higher form does not mean that they're not vulnerable to its lower forms. I think this is one of the things that drives me crazy about the current online culture. The idea that anybody out there is perfect in any way is a diminishment of the whole human story. So uh, what what I object to, and this is why I think it's important to talk about it, is that you can have a Gandhi and you can have a Martin Luther King who were tremendously important for the development of the collective, but who did not live pristine lives. That's just the way it is. But with but with the um, uh, emphasis being here on a certain type of feminine, it is clear there's a shadow side, and in this, it may be expressed in the sexuality side or in the human relationship side. Uh, both can coexist, is my point. Yes. I think, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Jung is the idea that ambiguity it has to be taken in contradiction has to be um, allowed for. I think ultimately what you're talking about with the on with the anima and the man is the life force. Right. And so and so that is an archetype itself. And so that archetype can have different faces. And these different anima figures that we're talking about are those different faces yes. or masks that they can wear. Right. Right. And I just want that as clarification because sure. again, that confuses a lot of people and then you're going to get the immediate pushback. Well, how can you be using these two? Because blah, blah. I see this on the page all the time, right? People coming in and saying, how could you quote this person? Okay. okay. Well, you know, that's right off everything um, based on whatever. And some of it is very murky because we don't even know. Okay. So now let's head, head to the top level of the um, archetype, which is Sophia Sapienta uh, wisdom. In embodied uh, by feminine, what would that look like? That would be a feminine that leads a man to individuation, that uh, leads him to his wholeness, that helps him integrate his wholeness, his awareness of his of wholeness. I think of a figure that's uh, 
that carries us well in film is the character of Trinity in the Matrix because she is the one that uh, leads uh, Neo basically into the underworld and into his true nature and into how that nature is to be expressed in the world. So that is the wisdom that that she imparts. Uh, I have a... Um, I'm also thinking in, in the the song, I, I talked a little bit about this, the song that probably will be on this episode is a song called On Her Way. And that song is not about any particular woman. It's It's something from my imagination. I actually have visuals when I think about that song. And it's the I, this idea, really more of anything, um, of this internal figure, this force of life. And so some of the lines of the song are, she's high, higher than me, dancing on leaves, blowing away. She's not something to be possessed. And there's an acceptance of that. The, the last part of the song uh, in the last verse is, I'm on the cross, I'm still lost but I'm on my way. And that came at a very important time for me as a songwriter because it was the animo, my internal feminine figure, because this was a very spontaneous product that came out of me. And she was basically telling me to wake up. I was on someone else's cross. I was carrying someone else's cross and I needed to get off of that to be able to mm-hmm. carry my own. And so that precipitated an event where uh, I split with a with a dear friend, and took on whatever that was, moving forward. So that is what I think is the highest. I'll say the highest. I, I don't know what what else to call it, but of the 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 purpose or the function of the of the anima is to make the unconscious conscious. Right. That's a great example, especially because. Our approach is trying to come from a creative side. It's interesting to see how it shows up in the work of uh, both you and I certainly have seen the animals of play in my own work. So I can see, um, I can, it's just great to connect those dots. It really is. Because the way that that's usually conceptualized is through the one figure, Dante's Beatrice, because she is like, like what you just described, higher. That's a little bit abstract, but it's great to see or to hear an example of how that has been applied in an actual work, like in any work, you know? Now, Dante would have done the same thing unconsciously. He wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, Beatrice, I know that there was a real Beatrice, but, you know, they'd met when they were 10 and whatever. It, it was it was more what was in his, the anima was so strong in his, in his um, psyche that he could portray that in poetic form. And uh, it would be great to have Dante around today and ask him, actually. Uh, but I would think that he might make exactly the same comment that you did, that it came out of a, a, a similar place, mm-hmm. which is which is really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she's gone today When I look her way I see the sky Falling with matches on her What about the animus? Huh, what about the animus? Well, I did a little video a while back uh, because of uh, people were talking about this this book, uh, A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Have you heard of this book? I don't it's, believe I have. Well, it's a Google engineers decided to figure out what people were Googling and to make a, some, just, just, you know, aggregate the data and say, well, what is going on here? And when they looked at women's searches, uh, you know, it was it, three words came up, and those three words are frightening to a lot of people if you don't work through them. And that's vampire, pirate, beast. Now, if you think about this a bit carefully, and you know enough about what's what popular culture is doing, then you'll understand why those three are showing up. First of all, vampires—they're everywhere, right? There's all these vampire romances. I'm not particular. I haven't seen any of them. I, it's what, not can you like describe that. a vampire romance? Oh well, where where the where there's a young woman who is basically in love with a vampire, and uh, and uh, I, I wish I could describe it better, but I admit I have not done the research and do not feel inclined to actually watch the films. But 
Uh, Twilight is an example of this. And, and actually, the Anne Rice, uh, and, and Anne Rice, uh, my, my son was commenting on this, that she was actually quoted as saying, and she's the one that wrote, I think, interview with the vampire that was made into a movie with Brad Pitt and, and I believe uh, Tom Cruise, that she had fallen in love with her own creation, which is an extraordinary thing to say. If that is the case, I'd have to check that because I can't really imagine that. But anyway, um, so the vampire is a really particularly interesting uh, <laughs> figure for women because Marion Woodman, the, Wood, the uh, Jungian analyst, who was an expert on the curse of the age, which is perfectionism, which is the shadow side of the masculine, noted that because she herself had an eating disorder, noted that women with eating disorders often had vampires appearing in their dreams. And I think that would probably uh, um, apply to any woman that is uh, determined, that is a victim to this perfectionist culture, which by the way, men are too, right? This is just one shadow side of that particular principle. And so what's troubling about it is what does it say about our culture when this figure is showing up in our popular culture as something really sexy and uh, all these girls projecting all their uh, emotion onto that kind of a character. If it literally is trying to kill you, <laughs> it's something I just think we need to have a conversation about. And she well, brought it up. That's yeah. what a vampire does. The vampire sucks the life out of you, right? Absolutely. So how is this? It's It's a troubling, I think it's a troubling story but it's very very prominent it has been actually probably for the last 20 20 maybe even 30 years because Anne Rice you know she's been around for a while so that's one of the manifestations of it and I mean we can go to the classical way that uh, the masculine but I just wanted to look at some of the cultural the ways we're seeing it right now in the culture the other one is beast now that kind of makes sense to me the beast uh you know beauty and the beast right and if you, uh, little girls are watching this and saying, oh, there's a beast. The beast is just that part of the underdeveloped masculine in, in a woman. And they're, you're attracted to it because it's part of you and it's still unrefined. And, and the idea is that you're being able to bring it into contact and make it develop until, if you watch the Disney version of it, until he can you know, tie his hair with a bow, uh, which is actually a very clever way of, of saying he's been, he has been um, tamed in some way once you put a, you know, a, a bow on it. And you do see this play out in relationships. Oh God, yeah. I mean, yeah, that is, yeah of course it does. Yeah, where where the the man is is something to be tamed and something to be changed. The, and, the, the instead of transforming oneself, yep. one is the the man becomes the object of transformation. Right, and that's a very dangerous game, right? So, well, one thing I would say is, if you had an education from day one, where you are working through these stories and alerting young women to listen the reason you are attracted to to this story, let's look at it from this archetypal level, is that this is part of you. And the worst thing you can do is try to locate it in a person and then try to put the bow on the hair. That's just, it's it's a, it's it's going to end up in disaster. Um, the other thing about that one is that there is a very famous example of it uh, be before the Disney version. Although Beauty and the Beast is actually based on, if you look at what it's related to, it's, it's really, uh, related to the story of Psyche, and um, ah, Cupid and Psyche. So that's the same story. And, and one of the things that's really interesting to bring up, because romantic love is what we were talking about, is that the key in that story is she has been abducted by Cupid and she can't see him. It's in the dark. And it's her sisters, her meddling sisters that start putting the thought into her head, well, maybe you're sleeping with a monster. Maybe you should. And it is at that moment that she puts the candle to his face and it burns him. And then he basically exiles or he leaves. I think that's a great metaphor for what happens when you shine the light on romantic love and you realize that, hey, uh, the reason that it can work, it worked up to then is that it was in, it was in the dark. And so you're not aware of the person's uh, contours, both positive and negative in a way. You're sort of blanking that out because it's all of your idea of what that person should be. Uh, the other way you see the beast, by the way, for women, they will recognize this in what I call the crazy novel of the 19th century that so many women are attracted to, which is Wuthering Heights. Mm. Uh, and Wuthering Heights is an extreme feeling. Uh, in fact, the whole of the Bronte world is so tied to the landscape that you just feel like you are sitting in this turmoil center. And, and Heathcliff there 
it's a total beast. And um, but they're twins. They're like almost twin souls, and they, they they have this sort of otherworldly thing. So that's a very prevalent has been for for a long time. And then the, the pirate I think is really interesting. And I think the reason women are searching pirate, by the way, is like they don't want to meet a pirate. Um, it was probably because of Johnny Depp. If you remember, he did all those pirate movies at that mm-hmm. time. I'm just trying to make sense of what why women would be searching this because. I must say, I have never searched for any of those three terms, so it really did intrigue me. Uh, So it's related to movies and popular culture, and I think uh, it it really is interesting to see. So the pirate is a rule breaker, and Mm. women often let men and are attracted to men who are rule breakers. I remember there was this uh, documentary that really stuck with me ages and ages ago uh, about women, a particular woman who had married not one but two, uh, uh, two men who were obsessed with climbing Everest. Both of whom died in that in that uh, uh, you know endeavor, and I and I wonder what's funny. They're not climbing, but they're attracted to that risk taker. So it's almost like you are letting someone you're attracted to the very thing you are not brave enough to do, uh, which is dangerous, obviously. So what I'm hearing in that is um, adventure. Mm-hmm. There's there's a call to adventure that's not being lived out, no. and you're finding it in the other. Right. And and I guess that's fine. At the beginning, it is fine. But I think if you can take it back and say, okay, where am I not doing this? Now, you don't need to climb a mountain to, to, but I think the breaking of some rules, which is, by the way, often how women do it in a in a way that is very unconscious, they'll break a rule, they'll have an affair, they'll do something that's completely out, outside of what normal behavior for them, they'll even think afterwards, what happened to me? What they're doing is they're trying to break, uh, they're trying to take that on, but they're doing it in a way that is not uh, perhaps helpful to them, right? Uh, but but it, but it's encoded in all of our stories. Part of what it takes to be an individual is to break some rules, to, to break away from the collective. And to break away from the collective, you are going to have to break some rules. And that's a problem because it pits you against what the collective wants from you. So so that's the th- those are the three incarnations you're seeing right now. In, in the classical uh, model, it would be the, the the first level you talked about the biological is the high school jock, right? He's the guy that all the women want to go out with. Um, and uh, it's completely biologically based. You're just attracted, boom, Brad Pitt, whatever, whatever the current, I'm not even, I'm not even aware who the current um, current incarnation of that is on screen, but whoever it is, right? The second level, and I can't remember the way it worked out. Uh, I think the second level, oh, the thinker, the professor, all the girls who fell in love with their professors because they're so smart and they can speak so well because that's the logos, right? So you're sort of projecting your own capacity to reason and think on an intellectual. Third level is a little bit like the Virgin Mary in that you start getting into the spiritual uh, uh, type. And that is you advocating your your own power to connect to that that part of you. And so you'll get people who are quite obsessed with uh, spiritual leaders. And it's probably the highest order of the of the archetype that, uh, again, what, what women are trying to do, just like men, are trying to become whole. And this is part of the, the, uh, the whole process. You know, you talked about your song. I had noticed after I wrote my first two novels that there was something uh, I, I took back, I looked at them and I, because the way I wrote them was a little bit, everybody does this differently. It was a bit of an unconscious, it always is a bit of unconscious, things pop up and I follow them. But my first two novels ended up with young men dead. I killed off two young men and uh, violently. It wasn't even, uh, it wasn't even, and I thought to myself afterwards, why am I killing all the young men in me off, right? Because it didn't make much sense. Uh, from a logical level, I guess for story, there was a reason that I that in both those cases that they had to die. But I just thought it was interesting that that wasn't happening to the older men. I was killing off this specific, and I and I worked with that. That and there was a shift in my own, not only my attitude towards life after that second novel was written, but actually the way that my writing my writing took a total turn at that point, or what I wanted to write about. It just stopped being interesting. The the older stories. And I think the latest one I've written, which has nothing to do, is very, very different from the first two, doesn't have that motif. Because I think the last 10, 15 years, I've been working on this problem within me, which is why am I doing that? And to me, the young man embodies all the possibilities in me and all the the rule breaker is going to be that young man. And there's a whole bunch of things that are embodied in the young man that uh has been worked out, I'd say, by the time the, the, you get to the second order. And I just realized my latest novel features a male character that is the professor 
it's that second level of uh, of uh, but it was weird that it took me this long to be able to write that that uh, second novel but it's it's grappling with this with these inner figures and I think it's really important to do that for that reason what's the fourth is there a fourth <laughs> yeah I'm working on it now yeah let's <laughs> I'll tell you the fourth is going to be the higher level uh, one but it is the scariest I've ever written because it is mythological so it takes me to the place that I really want to go to and now we're at the level of you know the Merlin the the uh the the wise old man kind of uh um character that brings things together and that women tend to see more as a sage because you know it's not sexual by that point it's completely mm. changed it's moved into another realm so that is going to be the difficult one and that's one that I'm right now carrying around in my head but it's it's much more intimidating than anything I've ever written because at that point you realize you don't want to get um yeah so actually that's a good question to ask you how would you write that what kind of anima song do you think you have in you at this moment has that changed from because I mean the on her way was written quite a while ago so what 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 would change or would anything change yeah I think it would that's a very interesting question can I suggest something that I've seen in your song writing sure so the last one and I can't remember sorry the name because I was just reading it I can't either <laughs> <laughs> the one with the stone the 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 motif yeah, I think that showed a much more mature um, anima uh, feeling to me. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the thing I picked up from it when I was reading. But that's my interpretation. Which, by the way, with all stories, we are taking now not only you into account, but now you're taking the alchemical reaction that happens with the person who's listening or reading it. Right. Right. I agree because it's a song that's full of feeling and and full of. Uh... It was actually connecting to uh, a painful experience, <laughs> very painful experience, but it wasn't, I mean, there was no female figure involved in any of it. I don't even think I, I reference a, a female figure. I think you you it. actually reference a priestess, which is what gave me the... Uh, I did see, yes, a priestess. That gave me the clue. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. I did. There is There is the priestess in that song. That's right. Yeah, that's a very good example because I am connecting in that, in that song... Um, it, it is kind of that that sense of longing, but not in a. I feel in that song I'm transforming something. I'm transforming pain into something higher, and and that's both physical pain and psychological pain, and so it really has nothing to do with um, a woman as far as. But but the song is the woman yeah yeah well that's what i that's what i that's why i thought it was a brilliant song because that you get that by listening to it <clears throat> that it has but it has a quality that yeah you actually can hear all of what you've talked about in in that song just by your definition of it but that struck strikes me as a higher order of because when you can make meaning of any pain any whether it's psychological or physical you transform it onto a very high level and that is really the job that young is putting before us is that to reinterpret our lives so that we're not caught in the story that this is horrendous but the once you're able to find meaning in something that is so hard everything changes and Mm -hmm. that's what i heard in that song for me Mm -hmm. anyway Mm -hmm. but again you this is where things get tricky because there are two people involved now the person who's created the song and the person who's listening or reading your book and one of the things I found as a writer that was really interesting when my books were published was going to book clubs and hearing people discuss my book and what they were not that what they were noticing that I hadn't even paid much attention to. And then I realized this isn't really about me. So then I used to, you know, not be that into going into book clubs, but then I was really interested because what I realized was the novel dies after it's written to a certain way, it becomes something on a shelf. But what I thought was so fascinating was that was the encounters I was having with these with these different people is that they were telling me about themselves by what they were noticing, and I'm fascinated by people. So I just thought, hey, this is great. Mm-hmm. Why why are you noticing that minor character that is sitting on the corner? 
there's got to be a reason. So, so that that that's what I think is great about all this. By the way, the fact that it's not you anymore; it's the connection you make to people who are engaging with your work. Um, Certainly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that helps a lot in terms of understanding. I, I do want to finish with one thing uh, because we we mentioned. Okay. So, what do you do? Uh, you can't help. No. I, that, in terms of what you do, uh, in a lot in um in a practical guide kind of way. And uh, I think Robert Johnson had the answer and he had it in, in We by analyzing Tristan and Isolde because that's a very archetypal, we go back to what I spoke about in the beginning about the uh, Celtic myths that came out, right? Mm -hmm. And th the weird thing that comes out of that myth, which actually is nonsensical unless you work with it, is that they, he, he, he and, and she uh, meet, and I love what Wagner did with this because he just took it to a completely different level, but they meet, they don't like each other at the beginning, but she ends up healing him. And then uh, in the Wagner opera, uh, there's a mix up of potions. And, and I think if you look at this metaphorically, drinking a love potion is really what you're doing when you fall in love with someone. Mm -hmm. you're basically, you're, you're drinking- It's a like a spell. Potion. It's a spell, exactly. It's a great, it's a it's a way great way to look at it. And he then has to bring her to King Mark, who is his uncle, so she to be married. And of course, now they're in a dilemma because he's in love with her, she's in love with him. King Mark, he he really respects King Mark and loves King Mark. So what do you do? That's a great triangle right there. Long and the short of it is that they can't keep away from each other. Uh, and this keeps causing problems and people are reporting this to Mark. And then anyway, it's a long story. But in the middle of this, the weird thing that happens with this myth is he meets another Isolde. And she is referred to as Isolde of the White Hands. First of all, you think, well, why are you doing this? Why are you creating a story where you have the same uh, the same name for this? That's really confusing. You wouldn't do that as a modern novelist, but it's brilliant. Because what that story is pointing to is that there is another version of Isolde he could have a real relationship with, which the White Hands referring to the ability to connect to a more real experience, to a grounded experience, to someone you can have a real relationship, which is going to be messy and not that archetypal and not that interesting, maybe, but it will be a real nourishing relationship. And he does for a while stay with Isolde of the White, of the white Hands, but he, he can't. In the end, he can't. He can't stay away from the other Isolde, and that's what sets off the reunion that ends up in death for both of them. And so in that myth, what I think Johnson is saying is you have a choice. If you are smart and you are conscious about this, what you do is you have the relationship to Isolde of the White Hands, which may not be everything you want it to be because you're not living in a bad uh, romantic comedy. But <laughs> what you do is you find a place for the other Isolde, either through connection to all the things you said, because you were talking about before social work. Um, some people connect that with charity work, uh, some idea of transcendence or art, if you can, if that's what appeals to you. And so, but but what you never do is try to turn a soul day of the white hands into a soul day of the higher order, because they can never be that. And that is what leads to despair. So I think that's a good way to, to finish it, that he understood that there is that division and as long as you attend to it, you can have a perfectly good, supportive human relationship that you will not uh, be writing into an opera every day. But then if you had to do that, it would be exhausting as well. So, mm -hmm. And you'd end up dead, right? So, I mean, metaphorically dead, but you'd end up dead. It will kill you. So you have to make a decision. So I think that is a great way to, to uh, solve the problem. Have a real relationship and, uh, and leave that to where, where it belongs, you know. Does that make sense to you? Certainly makes a lot of sense. Yes. <laughs> well, there you are. We will leave it there <laughs> at that point. <laughs> we've, we've now solved the problem of romantic love. People can, call, people can write to us and thank us. Thanks for listening. The music you've been listening to is from Jay Rettlesberger's album, Harvesting James. You can find his music at the links provided in the show notes. There, you'll also find links to anything else we've mentioned during our conversation. Thanks also to our producer, Andrew Graham. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating so others will find us as well. For now, until next time.
Guess I'm still 